welcome to episode 80. Before I move into this episode, let me share the end of the story with the Mini Cooper Coupe. I had that car for almost a dozen years, the longest ever, and it was awesome. It was a super long time because I really did love that car. Living in an urban environment, I don't drive that much. In fact, almost 2,000 miles was put on my car during my running around doing a renovation project, and it only had about 8,000 miles total. When I made the change and decided to trade it in, its value had depreciated as all cars do. And yet, the amount was way lower than I had planned. And so I said, wait, did you consider the mileage? Since it only had those 8,000 miles, as I recall, the mileage added almost 50% more to the value of the vehicle. Remember that I originally wanted the convertible, and that didn't come out for two years. And then that was the end of the Mini Coupe model. So few on the road, and up until I sold it, I always got double looks and actually saw people taking photos of the car. Ah, they are good memories. Its name was Cooper. That's creative, I know. So we're back at the FDIC, and the Dallas Learning Center is standing up and growing the capability of the corporate university organization. One of the priorities was focusing on the leadership program. Now, there was a foundation to build on, and one of the best aspects of that program was that for first-line supervisors, each class had a senior executive being a director or deputy director for that class. The executives took this very seriously, and they participated in as many of the sessions as they could, and it gave them a perspective of leadership from the field as well as providing the new supervisors and managers what kinds of issues that they were dealing with at the headquarters. And so it was really quite valuable. What was missing was a robust program for new employees and second-level leaders. And this was an opportunity for us to grow. And with my Air Force experience, I knew that we could really enhance the leadership program. You may not know this, When the FDIC closes the bank, they try to close the bank after hours on Friday so they have the weekend to first try to get a buyer, as you may have seen in the news with the recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and the bank leadership is fired and the employees are retained through the closure. It takes place very quickly, although there are cases where the press gets wind of the potential closure. When a bank or buyer isn't found, then the FDIC creates a bridge bank so that the next opening day, depositors have immediate access to their funds. And that was, of course, back during the last crisis when I was at the FDIC. As you saw with Silicon Valley Bank this past uh, year and a half ago, what we saw was the run on the bank was being done electronically because of online banking. And that caused a really a new wrinkle in how banks close going forward. I won't go into too much detail. However, what this is like, it's their wartime footing for the FDIC. Making sure the run on the bank doesn't occur because most depositors are insured. I mentioned this in an earlier episode and suggest that you go to FDIC.gov if you live in the United States and where you can get a full insurance determination. 
The FDIC also has an excellent record of selling bank assets that may have been purchased by the banks, and there have been some unusual assets. I remember one bank had racehorses. You may have heard the analogy of how there are signs of something significant, like a drip, drip, drip from a faucet, and then a deluge, and we're kind of surprised. The FDIC ramps up hiring in the Resolutions Division that you may remember has the primary operational offices in Dallas at the regional office where we established the Dallas Learning Center. During this crisis, employees ramped up from 227 in that division to more than 2,000, according to FDIC.gov's history of this last crisis. Temporary offices were created in Irvine, California, Jacksonville, Florida, and Schaumburg, Illinois, which is just outside Chicago. Certainly, a lot contributed to this crisis, and especially the boom-to-bust of the housing market that exposed cracks in the banking system. The FDIC's important role is to maintain integrity in the banking system, and they do that very well through each crisis in history since its founding after the Great Depression. Certainly, it's not just the FDIC. The Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve are partners in crisis leadership. What I will know is that the drip, drip, drip turned into a deluge with just three banks that closed in 2007 when I joined the FDIC, 25 in 2008, and hundreds from 2009 to 2011, with a slowdown in numbers by 2012. There is no question the agency was moving quickly from the top of the organization to the newest employees. We established two corporate university employees at each location to help deliver just-in-time training, and I traveled to every temporary office to deliver the employee mission and vision on behalf of the chairman. I enjoyed interacting with these new employees and seeing how fast the Dallas Learning Center moved to deliver the right training at the right time. I did get to go to one bank closure in Nevada and see the operation firsthand. Now, at this event, the press did get wind of the potential for a closure, so they were in the bank parking lot when we arrived. The team works very quickly and deliberately and very professionally, despite what's going on. There were naturally concerned and some upset customers, and of course, the employees are wondering what is going on. At this closure, by chance, there was a very influential community leader who had the deposits in the bank to help keep people calm. He said, I'm going to keep my deposits in this bank, and he stayed in the bank for quite a while talking to people that he knew as they came into the bank. In this particular case, the bank is typically open on Saturday for regular hours, and it did open that Saturday under a bridge bank. This experience was very rewarding and one of the most memorable of my tenure because I got to see close up how the agency did this particular mission. Now, as I mentioned, the agency had a leadership development program that was both entrenched in the organization, that's good, and a well-received program and respected as well. 
Whether line employees or senior leaders, by and large, people seek leadership development because not only does it benefit the organization in developing current and future leaders, it rewards individuals whether they stay or move on from the organization. What was missing was a full spectrum of leadership development for new employees and senior leaders. Essentially, at first, there were just two courses, with the primary being that first-line supervisor course that I mentioned earlier. Over time, we integrated additional courses and elective courses to fill the gaps for our newest employees as well as our long-term employees in our efforts to shift the culture with more focus on our employees. One of the newest programs was to develop senior executives, and that program fell directly under my office. This was a highly selective program, and we only had, as I recall, five or six people in the class because it truly was for executive development. The other thing that we started doing was that in addition to the courses that were held at Virginia Square, we also held some courses in the regional offices and electives in the field offices. I delivered many of these courses because I got certified in two of the, in two of the programs that we adopted to help people with communication and leadership. This allowed me to get out into the field offices and regional offices to both deliver the courses and then have a Q&A session to help me understand what other programs we can integrate into our existing leadership programs in areas where there might be some gaps. Even though this put me on the road a lot, especially during the crisis, because I was going to all the new offices, field offices, regional offices, and other professional conferences and so forth, I certainly didn't mind. This is where having status with an airline helps. And I want to give you two stories about travel. The first was in the dead of winter, and we were expecting a storm. I was due in Jacksonville and was watching the weather in my flights with some being canceled early on. And because I had enough status, the airline double and then triple booked my reservation as backups. In D.C., when there is even more than just what we call conversational snow on the ground, and this was a much bigger storm, the smaller aircraft go out before others because they need a shorter runway to take off. When I arrived to speak the next day in Jacksonville, most of the audience was surprised. Didn't you have a big storm in Washington? Yes, and here I am. The other story was when I was due to be in San Francisco for a conference to deliver a speech. The flight was delayed. I learned a long time ago that if a flight is delayed twice, it's time to look for an alternative. In this case, there wasn't a good alternative, so I hoped things were going to go well. And we boarded not too long after I started considering what options existed to get there in time to deliver the speech. We finally started to board, and then, as some of you have also experienced, we sit at the gate and sit. Eventually, maintenance comes on the plane. This isn't good, as anyone who flies regularly knows, and more time passes. This was a case where I was flying out the day of the event, and now it's coming up on crunch time. The aircraft door remains open. 
Finally, I asked the flight attendant if I can get off the plane since it was getting close to not making the event. I'm sorry, that's not possible. More time passes and now I definitely will not make the event. And I ask again. She says, well, it is up to the pilot. I explained my situation that I was going out for now almost no reason. And she came back and told me the pilot said I could get off the plane. By the time I got to the end of the jetway into the airport, there were four other passengers right behind me. All these learning experiences from traveling really does help because you can leverage your learning as you go into other traveling extravaganza experiences. Back to the leadership program, the Partnership for Public Service, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, conducts a survey across all small and large agencies and departments in the federal government to publish the best places to work in the federal government. Prior to enhancing the leadership development programs, the FDIC was below the middle of the pack in our agency category. Within just three years, the FDIC was rated the best place to work for multiple years in a row. Today, the FDIC is 17 of 27 mid-sized agencies. And I can't tell you why that is, because I've been gone for a decade. What I will say is that when the emphasis isn't on the leadership program, then those programs tend to... To wane, and we've seen that in many organizations as well as the military. About this time, we're also growing the staff and shifting the organizational structure. Of course, none of this comes with a little pushback from my peers. The objective was to align the university to provide two things. First, provide better mobility within the staff and growth for employees by expanding their scope of responsibility by providing rotation for some employees so they can work in other parts of the organization as well as with other managers. Our organization had a high percentage of managers who were promoted from within corporate university. In part, it was because some of the employees had been there since the creation and their tenure showed that they had the capacity to do more and grow. This was also when we added two new executive positions to better provide operational leadership and interaction with peers in other divisions. These organizational changes were possible because from its inception and through my first couple of years, we not only proved our value to the organization, we were developing better relationships with other senior managers, deputy directors, and directors when in the past, Almost all the coordination was done at markedly lower levels. In part, we tried to benchmark with other corporate universities, as well as focus on direct ways learning and employee development could improve the mission of the FDIC. Not only was the organization overall moving up in the rankings of the best places to work, corporate university had one of the highest individual divisional employee satisfaction rates. It was rewarding to me to watch this movement forward. I mentioned early on when I got to the FDIC that my predecessor was an operational executive and his ability to create the foundation 
is largely as an outsider how I was able to move the organization into that next level. Of course, I had peers that I worked with that were helpful, and I had peers that I worked with that were maybe more of a roadblock in some ways to some of the things that we were trying to do. Because before Corporate University was founded, each division had their own training program for their employees. And so that was a bit of a challenge because it really wasn't that long ago. On that front, I would do my best, and certainly not always successful, build as close a relationship as I could with my peers, and all the business line directors' offices were in the main building. I'd try to pop by and just say hi without any work agenda to just try to create a better personal relationship, and it worked with many of my peers. The largest business line director was obviously a very busy leader and highly respected and often not in the office when I stopped by. I'd tell her administrative team that I was just stopping by to say hello, and I'd sometimes get a comment when I saw her next that said, oh, sorry I wasn't in when you stopped by. It was a little surprising to me that sometimes when I would just stop by to say hello and people were in their office, they eventually would say, so what do you want? And I would say, I'm just here to say hello and see if there are any things that you need from corporate university. There were two other cultural things that just surprised me. The first was that I would send out a little birthday note to members of my team. Now, I only had the birthday month and day and not the year. There was a complaint that I was discriminating on their age by sending out a birthday card. And of course, that wasn't true, and I didn't even know how old they were. So they complained to HR, and after a conversation, it was completely, of course, okay to do. One of my colleagues started doing it as well, and then she stopped when similar complaints were made. I would also send out thank you notes to my team and people outside of the university when something went really well. It was definitely not the culture of the organization. I would get thank you emails thanking me for sending them a thank you card. And sometimes people would say that was the first thank you that they've ever gotten during their time at the FDIC. I still find all that a bit odd. One of my colleagues decided to get an ice cream cart from the cafeteria and the executive and senior managers pushed it around their division as a little afternoon treat. Was it well-received? Generally, it was. And there were one or two that said, well, how come there isn't a healthy option? You know what they say. No good deed goes unpunished. I find it curious to this day because there are always just a few. We also started earning a handful of awards, and I'll share how that came about next week. This week is a little short because I had some unique challenges that I had to deal with, and so we'll end here. I hope you have a great week. Kona says, meow.